Looking to sound like you know what's going on in the world? Pop culture, social strategy, comedy, and other funny stuff? Well, join the club and settle in for the Jeff Dwoskin Show. It's not the podcast we deserve, but the podcast we all need with your host, Jeff Dwoskin. All right, Jerry, thank you so much for that amazing introduction. You get the show going each and every week, and this week was no exception. Welcome, everybody. To episode 119 of Live from Detroit, the Jeff Dewaskin Show. As always, you guessed it, I'm Jeff Dewaskin. Great to have you back for a super duper, faster than a speeding bullet, able to jump tall buildings in a single bound episode. We got everything for you today. Author, writer, journalist Roy Schwartz is here. I originally came across Roy at the Motor City Comic Con where he was showcasing his book, Is Superman Circumcised? The Complete Jewish History of the World's Greatest Hero. I gotta tell you, this book, incredible. And Roy was kind enough to sit down with me and we kind of go through an abridged version of the history of Superman, the creation of the character that we all know and love today that was created in 1938 by two Jewish teens, Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster, the sons of immigrants from Eastern Europe. And they base their hero's origin story on, oh, oh, I'm not going to tell you, I almost told you, I'm not going to tell you, you're going to have to listen to the interview to get all the awesome details. And believe me, it's fascinating. Once you hear it, you're like, oh my God, this is great. It's just fascinating that the American icon that we all love, just based in, in so much Jewish mythology and background. And Roy's going to lay it all out for us in just a few minutes. I do want to thank everyone for all the letters, DMs, all that kind of good stuff, telegrams. I appreciate it. I read each one, frame the ones that are frameable. But everyone's like, oh my God, how are you going to top the Happy Days trilogy? That was like the happiest of days. And I'm like, I know. But then, boom, right? Spencer Garrett from Winning Time on HBO. Chick Hearn. Oh my God. So many great stories from the set of Winning Time and Star Trek The Next Generation, getting your Star Trek on. And Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, working with Quentin Tarantino, Brad and Leo. I call him Brad and Leo now, at least in the DM. So many great stories. I got so many compliments on that on that interview. It was, it was really great. And then the last episode was Judy Tenuta, one of the funniest human beings. And she's fighting cancer and she's in remission. And she came to kind of share her journey with us and share some laughs. And that was just such a treat, such a treat. And I got a treat for you. Monday's episode, April 11th. I got Will Wheaton's on the show. That's right, Will Wheaton stopping by. You may remember him from Stand By Me, Star Trek The Next Generation, Big Bang Theory. Yes, that Will Wheaton. He's going to be here live from Detroit, the Jeff Dewaskin Show. So get ready for that one. Will has a new book coming out on the 12th called Still Just a Geek talk about the book and we talk about his career. It's an amazing conversation. Can't wait to share it with you. I do want to take a quick second. Thank everyone for supporting the sponsors. When you support the sponsors, you're supporting us here at Live from Detroit, the Jeff Duoskin Show. And that's how we keep the lights on. Today's interview sponsor, The Daily Star, the internet's premier news destination. For listeners of Live from Detroit, The Jeff Duoskin Show, unlimited access to all the journalism we offer for just $1 a week with code JeffIsFunny. 
news that's clearly worth three, four, five dollars a week, all yours for just one dollar a week. Get the full news experience delivered right to your inbox. All right. That sounds amazing. You know what else is amazing? My interview with Roy Schwartz about his book, Is Superman Circumcised? The Complete Jewish History of the World's Greatest Hero. But before we get to it, what does Mayim Bollock, actress, author, and neuroscientist, have to say about the book? Mayim says, quote, I am floored by this deep and beautiful examination of history, liturgy, and culture. If you believe in comics as the holders of miracle, myth, and mystery, this book is for you. Well, that's a hell of a quote, is it not, my friends? I just thought maybe you needed my opinion and my embolics. It looks like some of you need to be pushed over the edge. <laughs> I'm kidding, but this book is amazing. This episode is everything. You're going to love it. Everything. You mean like superheroes and Nazis? Yes, those two things and more. You're going to love it. This gets crazy. All right, here's my interview with Roy Schwartz. All right, everyone. I'm excited to introduce you to my next guest, author, writer, journalist, author of the book, Is Superman Circumcised? A Complete Jewish History of the World's Greatest Hero. Everyone, welcome to the show, Roy Schwartz. Roy. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Glad to have you. This is a, a fascinating book that you've written. Deep dive into the uh, lore of Superman and his Jewish roots. I'm extremely excited to talk about this and to learn about it. I think the extent prior to diving into your book that I was aware was I knew the creators were Jewish, Jerry Siegel and Joel Schuster, and I knew that they sold it for a few pennies and regretted that for the rest of their lives. That was the extent of my, my knowledge of the creation creation, but I'm excited to have you here to dive deeper. I'm excited to uh, get to it. Yeah. Where did your fascination uh, with Superman and connecting all the Jewish roots and dots come from? So I'm Jewish. I was born and raised in Tel Aviv in Israel. And I actually taught myself English from comic books, which is why you'll sometimes hear me say things like swell and great Scott. I make no apologies for that. <laughs> Pow. <laughs> exactly. The Superman movie, the Christopher Reeve Superman movie was, I, I fell in love with it the first time I saw it. Uh, it came out before I was born in 78. I hatched in 1980, but it, it's, it was always there. That was my gateway drug into the superhero genre, which was my gateway drug into, into harder drugs, into the comic book medium in general, making me a collector, which is why I could never actually afford real drugs. And uh, <laughs> I think we're the same that way. I, I got caught up in collecting things and never got into drugs either. It was CDs for me. Right, right, right. So, you know, I kind of uh, escalated or, or went deeper down the, the rabbit hole, depending how you look at it. And I eventually moved to the States, got my my bachelor's, got my dual master's. And I was always interested academically in pop culture phenomena, including comic books, but not limited to. And I ended up writing my grad school thesis about the heroic figure, the concept of heroism in the Jewish tradition versus the Christian European tradition. And they differ in all kinds of ways. And that too was titled Is Superman Circumcised? It was supposed to be a cheeky title. And it ended up surprisingly winning the NYU annual thesis competition second place. And that led to some press, led to um, the publisher pitched me on the book actually, which is not how these 
these things usually happen. And uh, I ended up getting a fellowship from the Republic Library, uh, researched, I was a writer in residence for two years and ended up with Is Superman Circumcised? That's fascinating. That's really cool. I'm sure the the whole Is Superman Circumcised title threw them in that competition, but it's 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 a fascinating title. It's a fascinating story once you kind of, once you dig in. There's something called the Diagram Prize for Oddest Book Title of the Year, which is a humorous but very real international prize based out of the UK. Uh, it's given by the bookseller, which is their kind of publishers weekly. And I'm currently shortlisted and one of six finalists to win this prestigious, illustrious award of oddest book title in the world. That's very cool. Let me let me ask one question right up front. Sure. Because it's a very Jewish title, a couple of Jews talking Superman. Is, is this book for everyone now? Yes. That's a, a very nice question. Thank you for that. Yes. Here's the thing. I'm Jewish. I'm interested in my background. I'm interested in Jewish folklore and Jewish tradition and all that kind of stuff. I'm also a big comic book fan. I'm a huge comic book nerd. And I really wrote this book with both those audiences in mind. It is the history of comics and of superheroes from the Jewish angle, as well as the history of Judaism from the comic book angle. You don't need to be Jewish. You don't need to care about Jewish stuff. And there's still a lot to sink your teeth into. But this is coming from me, the author. You just read the thing. You tell me. No, it is. But I'm Jewish also. So I thought it was fascinating from that point of view. Right. But I just I figured other people would do it. And I just wanted to kind of get that up front. And so I know. Thank you. Yeah. I constantly had that in my mind. I did not want this to be by the Jews, for the Jews, about the Jews. I did not want it to be that. It is absolutely for comic book fans, American history fans, Superman fans. Absolutely. There's enough enough uh, stuff there. OK, so this is not a call to arms to the Jews to claim Superman as their own. <laughs> no, it's not. I, just kidding. Know, I just kidding. that was for everyone else. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. No, no. It's not an argument. I mean, maybe it's a little bit of bragging rights, but it's not an argument for ownership, but rather contribution. It's as if uh, uh, jazz was never credited as being an African-American art form. It's not to say, oh, this is ours. Keep your hands off of it. It's really us. That's not what this is about. But it's about recognizing all kinds of historical contexts and themes that you can find in the comics that really haven't been either noticed or analyzed properly before. Talk a little bit about, because you cover it in the book as well, sort of the emergence of comic books as an art form. The comic book medium is a Jewish invention, and the superhero genre is a Jewish invention. At this point, for people who are Jews, definitely, but also for comic book fans, this is a bit old hat, right? I'm not breaking new ground by saying this. People have written about this before me. In the 1930s and 40s, you had Jewish immigrants and their children in New York. They couldn't get a job in any creative industry. If it was respectable, then Jews needn't apply. There was a lot of anti-Semitism plus the Depression. And so entrepreneurs and writers and editors and artists created an industry of their own. And it really got its start in 1933, 1934 with an out-of-work school teacher from the Bronx called Maxwell Gaines Ginsburg, who, uh, hiding from his uh, nagging Yiddish mama in the attic one day, started rifling through old newspaper strips, find himself enjoying the old um, Sunday funnies, the, the paper strips that would be printed across a full page on Sunday, and figured that kids might want to pay just to read that. So he licensed old comic strips, um, kept with the idea of putting it in this kind of saddle-stitched magazine format, putting on newsstands for 10 cents. I'm giving you the very abridged version of how it all evolved. You know, an, a small industry started and it was practically all Jewish. A few Italians because these the neighborhoods overlapped and these communities uh, went hand in hand. But it was predominantly Jewish. And one of these businesses was Detective Comics Inc. called DC Comics Today, owned by Harry Donenfeld and Jack Leibowitz, two Jews from the Lower East Side, who were also bootleggers and pornographers before and a little bit during this whole thing. Jews don't get enough credit for that. 
<laughs> right, right, right. Exactly. <laughs> interesting, uh, interesting stuff there. And, and pornographers, I mean, like Playboy style magazines. Just back then, that was hardcore. It's sure. nothing by today's standards, right? But they're involved with the mob and all kinds of stuff. And but there's only so many reprint rights you can get, and there's only so many comic strips you can cut and paste into a magazine form before you run out of material. And they started commissioning new material, and then they came up with the idea of not a comic book, meaning not humorous, that's why they're called that, but rather action comics, which was the title of an upcoming anthology, meaning a bunch of short stories. Deadline was approaching. They had the, the printing press all booked. They were 13 pages short, and they didn't have anything to put in. So in a scramble, they pulled a previously rejected strip um, from the slush pile, which Donenfeld thought looked stupid when he originally saw it. Something Superman something. And they decided to throw it in. He even, uh, by accident, made the cover. And so in June 1938, Superman debuted on the cover of Action Comics number one. And the rest, as they say, is history. For an accident, that's that certainly became one of the most iconic covers and probably one of the most valuable comic books to own ever. Yeah. It recently got beat by Amazing Fantasy 15, but I don't know if that would be replicated. But yes, it's definitely one of the most valuable copies sold in 2014 for $3.2 million special auction. Is Fantasy 15 Spider-Man? No, that sold recently this year. Um, no, I mean, is that who was on the cover? eBay, yeah. $3.2 million, yeah. Oh, man. So when you say that the strip was rejected and they grabbed it from the pile, can you talk a little bit about you're talking about Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster's invention of Superman, which was rejected a bazillion times. This is my favorite part of the whole sort of mythology of the character, right? Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster, uh, one is uh, the son of immigrants. Uh, uh, Schuster was born in Toronto. Metropolis, by the way, before New York, was actually modeled after Toronto. The Daily Planet was the Daily Star, where Schuster, at the age of 10, was a, a newspaper boy. His parents were for, from Holland and the Ukraine, uh, and they were uh, Schusterovich. And then they came to Glenville, which was then a very Jewish neighborhood of Cleveland, Ohio, of all places. Not New York, not LA, not Florida, but Cleveland, Ohio, in the middle of the Midwest, where he met a first-generation American called Jerry Siegel, whose family came from Lithuania. They were Sigalowitz. And the two became best friends at first sight. And at the age of 17, in high school, came up with the idea of Superman. And here's the great part. From 1934 to 1938, nobody wanted it. They pitched their idea to every single newspaper syndicate in the United States. Every single one rejected it. They got... Um, uh, Jerry Siegel kept all the rejection letters and I read through them, which was an amazing treasure trove in of itself. The idea was too gimmicky. It lacked true appeal. It lacked uh, lasting power. My absolutely, my absolute favorite, it was too fantastical for kids to relate to. I, I just love that. It's really great. And then, you know, they got their start in 1936 for DC Comics. They did uh, Henry Duval, which was sort of like a Musketeers ripoff. They had uh, Doc Occult. They had Slam Bradley. So they got their foot through the door. It wasn't, you know, from from all to from nothing to all. And then they got their strip out in 1938. And turns out that it was not too fantastical for kids or for adults. To give you a scale, best-selling comics until then reached 200,000 copies. A very very small group managed to break 400,000 copies. Superman very quickly got to 2.2 million. By 1942, Superman series collectively sold 12 million. Newspapers, wow. the syndicates that rejected him everywhere, they ended up syndicating him in 230 newspapers, reaching 25 million people. 
then, you know, a year and a half into it, this is a year and a half since he showed up. We're talking 1940, still the depression, tail end, but still the depression. He got the adventures of Superman radio series, four and a half million uh, listeners, a third of whom were adults. The Fleischer cartoons shown in movie theaters, prefiguring film noir by decade and change, 20 million people watching it. He had his own dedicated Superman day in the 1940 New York World's Fair that broke all attendance records. He was a Macy's Thanksgiving Day parade balloon. Time magazine declared him the number one juvenile juvenile vogue in the United States. And all this is during the depression and just a year and a half since he showed up. That's amazing. That's incredible. That is really. Now had that had Siegel and Schuster sold him to DC already at this point? Yes. So the the original sin of the comic book industry, the story is a lot more uh, convoluted and I think a lot more interesting than the romantic narrative and going to quite quite a bit of detail in the book is that you know, nobody thought about this. Yes, he was their brainchild. They loved him. They believed in him and all that kind of stuff. But nobody thought about this stuff as intellectual property. There wasn't a concept that this is all worth money and we'll make a mint. This was fodder. You know, this was, let's write this and next week we'll write that. And the following week we'll write something else. And they cut and paste uh, what was originally a newspaper strip into page format and sold 13 pages to DC Comics for $10 a page, a total of $130. That's about $2,800 uh, adjusted. And with it, they sold the rights. In perpetuity. So DC Comics owned Superman for $130. That's it. And then 1945 came a lawsuit that lasted till 2016. How did that end? It was a series of very ugly, very acrimonious lawsuits and counter lawsuits and counter counter lawsuits that began with Sigon Schuster and then continued with their heirs. Again, it's complicated. I go into it in the book and it ended up with sort of dispute resolution. It didn't end up by, uh, there are a couple of, of court decisions in terms of what was binding or not, but ultimately they settled. So you could argue that they never got what they deserved. And unfortunately, Sigmund Schuster died, with, uh, they lived most of their lives in poverty and they died without quite uh, without a lot of money, but they just had a small stipend. But the family now owns, um, Schuster's family got virtually nothing. Schuster, Schuster was not married. He didn't have children. There's just a bunch of cousins. They got virtually nothing. Uh, Siegel's uh, widow and then his daughter uh, and a few other family members who run the estate uh, now own about 6% of Superman, as well as uh, an annual payout. So they make several million dollars a year. So it, it may be pittance compared to what they deserve, you could argue, but they are not hurting. It's not probably not what they could have had, but it's not. It's not horrible either. But given how long it took, I'm sure it, it still feels painful. Let, let me ask you a question. Draw the comparison. Like what what evolution of the character had Siegel and Schuster created versus the version you fell in love with, 1970s Superman with Christopher Reeve? Because Siegel and Schuster had created the beginning of the concept, right? I mean, eventually what we fell in love with as Superman really, really evolved beyond the initial idea. Right. There were proto versions of Superman. Actually, the very first version was a short story in which he was a bald villain style Lex Luthor. And that's that sort of goes back to even 1932. But by 1934, they were not inspired, but rather compelled by the rise of Nazism and um, anti-Semitism domestically. There were enough villains in the world. They wanted a hero. And they talk about this and they turn him into a hero. Again, there's a whole evolutionary tree of how this concept evolved. And if you look at the Superman who debuted in 1938, he's not this gentle, amicable, you know how uh, after he saves Lois from the helicopter in Superman the movie, she says, who are you? And he goes, a friend. And he flies off, which is great. So this is not the Superman who showed up in 1938. He, uh, the first thing he says to Lois is, you needn't be afraid of me because he's scary. He's this angry 
pugilistic, smack them around, New Deal, uber liberal. The, he spends the first issue pretty famously uh, beating up landlords and wife beaters and throwing people out windows and uh, all that kind of stuff. He was very aggressive and very much a rebel rousing reformist. Sounds like a thug. For the alliteration. What? Sounds like a bit of a thug. Yeah, he was a thug in the good guy side, right? Yeah. He, he was sort of fed up. Uh, he, he was bullying the bullies. He was intolerant towards the intolerant. He really mellowed out uh, beginning in, well, first of all, he became this all-American icon in the 40s from somebody who fought against the abusers of the American way of life to somebody who championed the American way of life, fought Nazis and all that kind of stuff. He was still pretty aggressive, though. He um, he sunk submarines and swatted planes out of the sky and, and definitely had a death toll. It's not until the 50s where he becomes this kind of patriarchal, conservative, Mr. Rogers-style uh, square, which he really only was during the 50s, but that kind of stuck as an image. Right. Then, right. you know, the 60s, and this is a very, very brief kind of overview, but in the 60s, he becomes this uh, hallucinogenic, constantly identity warping character. And he's really out there, crazy storylines that appealed either to the very young or the very high. Really weird. He, he transformed into gorillas and became fat and became a baby and became a midget and became a woman and grew an ant's head and a lion's head and shot rainbows out of his fingertips and produced miniature versions of such weird stuff. And it became things became a bit more bitter and realistic in the 70s, as most comics of that era were. And then, of course, come the 1986 John Byrne reboot. If you guys read comics, you know what this is about, uh, which really invigorated him. He, he had this kind of Reagan's America analeptic, you know, you remember the it's morning in America slogan. There was this kind of uh, neoconservative uh, rah-rah spirit to him, for better or worse. Then come Dan Jurgens, then comes the death of Superman, you know, kind of stuff, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So the Superman you're talking about in 1978 is much more gentle and much more relaxed and um, warm than the prickly, uh, aggressive Superman of Siegel and Schuster. A great overview. Thank you so much. In the book you talk about, and I thought it's fascinating if you could cover it a little bit at least, just the the parallels to Superman's story and the Bible. There are many. There's nothing new under the sun, as they say. So the, the first parallels are between Superman and Moses, and I'm not the first one to note them. It's been commented on before me, and I just want to be clear about that. Some people say, well, people have written about it. Yes, but just because somebody discovered an archaeological dig doesn't mean there isn't room to keep on digging and finding more stuff, right? Correct. <laughs> That's sort of the, I'm always surprised. Well, somebody has written a, a biography of George Washington. Why are you writing a new one? Because there's more stuff to talk about. So here we are. The origin story or where the parallels are the most obvious. To save baby Kala's life from the destruction of his people, he's placed in a small vessel. He's sent adrift to an unknown fate. He is found uh, amidst thick vegetation by people not his own. He's renamed by his adoptive mother, and he grows up to be this great savior. That is the origin story of Moses, right? right. One to one. It's impossible not to, to see it once you think about it. But that's pretty much where people have, where this examination ends. And the thing is that the parallels run much, much deeper. And again, you read the book, you know, there's all these kind of thematic concepts, but I'll just give you one easy example. Uh, look at the Superman movie and look at what happens when he turns 18. He hears the crystal, right? The sunstone crystal calling him. He goes on this walkabout across the North Pole. He creates a fortress of solitude. 
whereupon he encounters the um, hologram of Jor-El, his father, this kind of bright apparition manifesting out of the ice, telling him, I am Jor-El, you're Kryptonian, here's your heritage, here's your culture, go back into the world and be this great savior. And that is Moses crossing the desert of Median, coming up across the burning bush, seeing the uh, apparition of God, who tells him, I'm the God of your father, by one Talmudic story, even talked to him in the voice of his father, who tells him where he's from and sends him back into the world as a savior. So these perils continue and there's many more. Siegel, so in 1979, following the success of the movie, Jerry Siegel wrote a memoir and promptly lost it. And that stayed lost until 2011 when Larry Ty discovered it, researching his Superman biography, uh, The High Flag History of America's Greatest Hero. I think that's the name. And for some reason, nobody since Ty until me actually read this thing. So it's in the Columbia University libraries. I schlepped up there, scanned the thing, read it. And Siegel details and influences, and he talks about how Samson, the biblical hero, was a strong influence on the creation of Superman. Samson is super strong. If you remember the stories, he's super, super fast. He um, outruns and catches 300 foxes. He leaps in a single bound, a distance of about four miles in one story. That's a Talmudic story. And Samson was a judge. He fought in the name of truth and justice. Siegel was also, he writes, he was also inspired by um, the Golem of Prague, particularly a 1920 movie version, which was a huge success back then, a German movie written and directed by uh, Henrik Galin, uh, a famous Jewish director. He was inspired in creating this indefatigable, indestructible protector of the innocent. And that uh, origin story, by the way, was used wholesale for Bizarro in 1958. It's one-to-one, the exact same origin story. So there's definitely these kind of uh, cultural influences from the get-go. Can you explain what a golem is? So a golem is a creature of Jewish folklore. Uh, You will find them in legend, you'll find them in the Talmud, you'll find them in Kabbalah. The idea is that mud and dirt can be formed into a human shape and then breathed life into, sort of like a... um, Basically Frankenstein, except mystical instead of scientific. Interesting to note that the Frankenstein legend most of us are familiar with, uh, with traces back to the 1931 movie with Boris Karloff. That's more an adaptation of the Golem legend than Mary Shelley's actual novel, including even a char- the character of the little blind girl who's not afraid of Frankenstein. That in of itself is stolen from the Golem movie from 1920, which also shows up in the Bizarro origin 1958. So it all goes back to the Golem legend of this kind of creature of dirt that is given life and looks human by Jewish mysticism. And he shows up in all kinds of different versions of the story. Uh, I would argue that uh, Wonder Woman, even though she's not a Jewish creation, you know, her or- her original origin before she was a result of a tryst between Zeus and Pallada, she was kneaded out of sand on the beach and breathed life into by the gods. That's a golem story, basically. And in the legend of the golem of Prague, there's the rabbi of Prague who, to defend the Jews of the ghetto of Prague from, from pogroms, he creates this creature to defend them. But the creature, as well-meaning as he is, gets out of control, starts being destructive, and has to be destroyed, which, again, brings back to Bizarro. So uh, Superman was sort of a golem. And, you know, made the text really, given uh, how much heartache he gave his uh, creators, he's sort of a golem in our world as well. <laughs> it's fascinating. You're right. This second... I'd never heard the parallel between Superman and the Moses story, but once I read the book and and you were talking about it, it's just so there. It, it's so interesting. However, there is also parallels, though, with Jesus, right? I mean, there's been reinterpretations where he's seen as more of a Christ figure as well. And he is that, absolutely. You know, if you're a messianic figure of, of Judaism, it's a very short 
single bound to leap into uh, a messianic figure of Christianity. And it's equally true. It's equally legitimate. There's room enough for everybody. This, again, it's not an argument for origination, for um, ownership. Very important for me to kind of point that out. But the pearls to Christ weren't there in the comics originally, in the prime texts. They were added decades after after Superman's creation. And they begin with the 1978 movie. And then it become more and more obvious in uh, Smallville 2001, Superman Returns 2006, and particularly the Henry Cavill movies, you know, Man of Steel 2013, uh, Batman v Superman uh, 2016, and Justice League 2017. There's nothing particularly Christological, meaning Christ-like in the comics, until the death and return in 1992. I just had a conversation about that with Dan Jurgens at uh, Motor City Comic Con. Uh, we can circle back to that. Again, it's as legitimate, but beyond the general concept of somebody who came from the heavens and he's a savior, you know, he didn't, he wasn't sent as a savior. That, that begins with the movie. He was sent as a refugee, right? He was sent uh, as a poor baby who needed to be taken in, looked after, and raised, which is in the context of the 30s and 40s, a very potent metaphor. He didn't come here to sacrifice himself. He came here to dedicate himself, which is a very big difference in our concept of heroism, the dedication of life versus the sacrifice of self. He is also very much a Christ figure, and that's enriching of the mythology, but that sort of stands apart as a later addition to the mythology. Right. You mentioned Smallville. I was a big fan of Smallville. Actually, you mentioned Motor City Comic Con. I met Tom Welling there. I got his autograph. And Michael Rosenbaum was also there. Lex, he's Jewish. Well, he's Michael Rosenbaum. (laughs) I was supposed to meet both. Rosenbaum left a bit early and I didn't get to. I got to meet Welling uh, because the organizers kind of put us in touch. They were hoping there'd be some fun stuff. You know, he was super nice, no pun intended. It's funny, I brought him, I had asked his agent if he wanted a copy of the book and they just said, sure, but I don't think the agent talked to him about it. So when I brought him a copy of my book, he just grabbed it and signed it. So now I have a copy of my book signed by him. I don't know what to do with it. I can't sell it. It's signed by him. That's awesome. No, that's <laughs> right. Oh, he, he, uh, well, he was right. He's, he's in such the mode. That's when they're at those Comic Cons. That's what they're. Oh, they're people hand them stuff. They sign it and then move on. Absolutely. But he was. He was. He was very nice. So I can't. The coolest thing I thought of seeing him is him and Michael Rosenbaum truly have a really nice friendship. They mess with each other a lot. It was really funny. I didn't get to meet Michael Rosenbaum though. I wanted to, but he was. We never synced up. So speaking of Lex, so if. In the Moses story, is Lex Luthor Ramses? Is he a pharaoh? Or is there, is the is it not connected that way? I mean, I make the joke in my book, they're both famously bold. <laughs> That's right, true. <laughs> right, right there. What do you need more? No, the you know, it's interesting. Elliot Magan, who was the main creative force on Superman during the 70s and until Crisis, really, approached both Superman and uh, Luthor is Jewish. He he said in an interview, the Kents are Methodist and Clark Kent is Methodist, but Superman is Jewish and it's so self-evident it might as well be Kent, which is sort of, you know, great. Uh, and he also thought of Lex Luthor as Jewish. And it's interesting from that perspective, you know, if let's be Freud for a second, yeah, a superhero is this sort of veneration of the father figure, right? I mean, all godly uh, creatures, including God himself and religion, according to Freud, is really a surrogate of the father figure. And so a villain is sort of representative of the phobia of the father figure's ability to control and thwart the autonomy of the individual. Again, playing, playing psychoanalysis here for a second. From that perspective, Freud is sort of a surrogate Oedipal complex. Uh, Freud, no, sorry. Uh, Luthor is sort of a surrogate Oedipal complex. And from the Jewish perspective, he is, you know, what's more anathema to Jewish culture than intellect and knowledge and scientific progress in the service of evil, right? Mm-hmm. 
Right. If you think about it, Luthor is the closest Earth has to Jor-El. Right, Joel is a former scientist in Krypton. He's the former creator. He uses his knowledge to save life. He could have saved all of Krypton if they listened to him, but he managed to save his son. Luthor is the Earth equivalent. He's the former scientist on Earth, but he uses his for evil to take life, to destroy in selfish pursuits. And it's a tragedy because Luthor is sort of what Superman hopes to aspire humanity to be. And Luthor is so blindsided by his hatred of Superman that he misses out the most obvious that Superman would be his most natural ally. A man from an advanced civilization who brings with him advanced knowledge and can help advance the human race. And I don't think that's punched up enough in their, their antagonism in the comics, mostly, that they the big tragedy is that they really should be best friends and allies and just can't. I think that's true in life. A lot of times your best friend can easily be your, your worst enemy. So right. very interesting. So talk to me about, or talk to us all about, Hitler and the Nazis they knew Superman was Jewish. They didn't like it. Yeah, yeah. I have to tell you, as a both a, a Jew and a, a descendant of Holocaust survivors on both sides and uh, a buff of history, I, I can very authoritatively tell you that the Nazis did not like Jews. <laughs> the- <laughs> you heard it here first, folks. <laughs> Breaking news. Uh, we're going viral. <laughs> right, right. So Superman's, Jerry, C- Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster's Jewish Jewishness was noted in the press pretty early on, but it was never really a big deal. Comic books, as successful as they were, were sort of under the cultural radar. And the fact that Superman was basically a propaganda figure, another way in which he was a golem advocating for his people's um, kind of reflecting their preoccupations and advocating for their, their interests, is that he promoted, uh, he was a New Deal liberal, right? He, he promoted interventionism and rearmament and New Deal uh, socioeconomic policies and all this kind of stuff. And again, this was noted in the press, but it was never uh, never reached critical mass. It was never made a big deal. And then comes February 27th, 1940. And Siegel and Schuster, at this point, making millions by today's standards, you would think these are two Jews during the Depression, high school educated, their character is doing very well, even though they sold away, they're still making a lot of money. Why would they rock the boat? But they were, you know, they had an impetus. They created a character with a purpose. There was a magazine called Look Magazine, which was a competitor of Life Magazine, was read by millions, even more people than the comics. And they wrote this two-page story called How Superman Would Win the War. And in it, Superman declares war on Hitler and Stalin. Stalin and Hitler at the time were still uh, allies following the Ribbentrop-Molotov agreement that Hitler would break about uh, two months later. Superman breaks through the Siegfried Line. That's the impregnable uh, fortification line between France and Germany. He twists Nazi cannons into pretzels. He swats the Luftwaffe, the Air Force, out of the sky like flies. He grabs Hitler and Stalin by the scruff of their necks, like kittens or like, you know, like wayward children. Flies them over to the League of Nations. That's a precursor to the UN, where they stand trial for war crimes. And, you know, it's very cathartic. It's very fun. But who cares? Right. It's just a kid's character in this little story. Who cares? Turns out that the Nazis cared. And in April, April 12, uh, 1940, in Das Kopf, the, the Black Corps, which was the official newspaper of the SS, uh, they published a whole page tirade against Jerry Siegel. They ignored Joe Schuster for some reason about, about how he's brainwashing American children with, and you can't invent this stuff, it's too good to be true, false Jewish values of protecting the innocent, showing compassion to the weak, helping the needy, all that kind of stuff. Because think about it, they were Nazis. It was all about this kind of warped Ubermensch, right? Master race, Libenzaum, all this kind of nonsense. So the idea of helping the weak was anathema. And you can't invent this nonsense, right? It's great. It's awesome. And Schuster seems to always get the the short end of the deal. <laughs> it's Penn and Teller. He's always the mom, you know, 
you know, it, it was reported on. And by the way, several accounts attributed this article directly to Joseph Goebbels, who may or may not have also had a conniption about it in the middle of a Reichstag meeting. Uh, but either way, this was reported on pretty widely in, in the American press, how these two Jewish kids kind of stuck their finger in Hitler's eye, kind of ruffled the feathers of the vaunted master race. And here's the interesting thing. So everything I just said has been written about before me, but in Superman 25, they trolled the Nazis back. And there's a story where... Basically, there's a character called Geezer, who is this kind of, there are these levels of metatextuality. He's a spoof of Superman, as he's described by the Nazis in the article, following the Look magazine story. Did you follow all that? And in it, basically, this surrogate character of Superman, who's a surrogate of his creators to begin with, has turned Hitler into the laughingstock of the world. And nobody takes Hitler seriously. So Hitler, at a loss of what to do, sends agents, Bund agents, to assassinate the creator of, of Superman in the comic. And Superman saves him by dressing up as the character. The layer of metatextuality and metatextuality is great. And he saves the day, of course. So the last laugh belongs to Siegel and Schuster. That is yeah, awesome. Great. That, needs to be t- that needs to be talked about more. I agree. <laughs> that is really cool. Uh, so Siegel and Schuster did make money during the run of Superman as they were working still with DC. Yes. And they. it seems that Schuster spent more on his family while Siegel spent more on himself. But either way, neither saved up or invested wisely. So by the time they uh, got fired from DC, uh, they both pretty much slid into poverty pretty quickly. Uh-huh. Which is not to absolve DC of malfeasance, but, you know. Right, but they should have been able to handle that money better. They, sh- they by today's standards, were, yeah, <laughs> they, they were millionaires by today's standards, and then they just spent it all, uh, basically. Okay. Yeah. Well, they were living high on sticking it to Hitler, so they probably didn't I think mean, that, Siegel, didn't, didn't think it would run, and probably didn't think it would end. <laughs> Right, 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 right. But, you know, just for example, Siegel and his first wife, Bella, that's before he married Joanne, who was the, the model for Lois Lane. Neither of them drank at all, but they had a fully equipped bar in their basement in their home. And then, you know, they were eating out and dressing nice and spending and it. You know, fine. They're young people. It's the depression. You're 22 years old and all of a sudden you have six million bucks in the bank account. I get it. But unfortunately, they did not prepare wisely for the day after. So. But six million back then. I just threw a number, but yeah, okay. roughly. No, no, six million by today's standards. Just, oh, I, by today's yeah, standards. Okay, right, right, right. Okay, they, gotcha. they were well off. And again, none of this is to say what are they complaining about or DC was fine. I'm not saying any of that. But they they could have done a lot better than they did. Yeah. Sure. So do we consider Krypton then, I think you said it in your thing, space Jews, but then I thought Jews in space like Mel Brooks, but. <laughs> yeah, we're Jews, we're Jews in space, moving along, singing a song, protecting the Hebrew race. <laughs> you know, he's doing part two, apparently, as a TV Yeah, and Hulu, and Hulu. Hulu, yeah. Uh, I really hope he finishes it, and I hope he's able to get away with that humor, because I don't know. Well, we'll see. We'll see. The, uh, he barely got away with it back then, so I don't know what's going to. But um, Krypton is space shtetl. Right. I mean, there. The, if you look at the world of Krypton miniseries, the first comic book miniseries, 79, uh, Howard, Howard Chaikin and uh, Paul Kupperberg, the all Jews, they discuss how the supreme value of Kryptonian society is education and preservation of knowledge and how they pursue both the preservation of past culture as well as progress. Well, if that's not a Jewish cliche, I don't know what is. They also mention that the number of Kryptonians just so happens to number 6 million, which is a really evocative number back then. 
Uh, and there's more. There's all kinds of, uh, you know, if you if you go to the, the um, Alien S. Magan stories from the 70s, then in Krypton's ancient past, one of Superman's ancestors, Jeff L., warns Kryptonians against the flood that comes, and that's evocative. Uh, a bit later on, they're enslaved by the pharaonic-sounding Takanet to build his Ziggurat empire, and they gain freedom with a plague of hives. You know, there's a lot of it in there. So, and Alien S. Magan said, yeah, Kryptonians are basically space Jews. So... He openly approached them as such. So should we assume if Superman was circumcised that he would have been circumcised on Krypton? Uh, I mean, listen, I don't know if he's circumcised or not. I again, know, I'm just kidding. I'm just saying, I, know, no, I, don't, no, think no. You can, I don't think you could cut him here. <laughs> well, you'd have to ask Lois if, if he is or isn't. But um, <laughs> no, I, I have to note that because you would not believe how many people don't get that the title of my book is just playful and cheeky and really think I wrote an entire book about Superman's circumcision. <laughs> and it's like, you really think it's, like, it's 300 pages. A hundred of them are images. You really think all this about his schmeckle? That literally this is what the book is about? And a lot of people do, and I don't get it. Um, uh, so no, the uh, of course, on Krypton, he wasn't super. So if you had to circumcise, as long as they shipped him off at, at least eight days old, he could have been circumcised. Uh, but I get asked this so many times that I've actually come up with an answer. All right, what's the answer? Hey, I'll ask you, is Superman circumcised? Well, I'm glad you asked. I'll tell you. On Krypton, if you remember, his father's name is Jorel. He was born Kal-El. So he was circumcised by Moyel. Okay, we're going to... Oh. oh, sorry, the, the podcast suddenly cut off. No. <laughs> I know, it's so bad. I love it. Uh, you must be ahead of parties. <laughs> I, will t- I will tell that joke, though. Yeah, the, the old people crowd loves it. <laughs> Uh, oh, I thought of an idea for your book. The one yeah. the one that you have accidentally autographed by Tom Welling. Yes. So you, Christopher Reeve obviously uh, sadly left, but you could get other all the other living Supermen to sign it. Brandon Routh, Henry Cavill, Dean Cain, the guy, I don't know the name of the guy on the CW right now, but uh, get all the Supermen. Yeah, get all the Supermen to sign it, and then you could sell it for charity. How cool would that be? That would be cool. That's uh, not a bad idea. Just an idea. I give away free ideas here. That, that actually, I would like to charge you one hundred thirty dollars for that idea. Ooh, <laughs> one for each signature. <laughs> oh man! Well, this is super cool. This was really enlightening, very informative. You are brilliant, and I know we could probably talk all day about this, but believe me, folks, as much as we did talk about it, Roy's book goes so much deeper into all these stories and additional layers of context. It's like 300 pages. It's unbelievable. Absolutely unbelievable. Detailed and so interesting. So interesting. Thank you. You're welcome. Where can uh, people find your book? So, Is Superman Circumcised? The Complete Jewish History of the World's Greatest Hero is available everywhere books are sold. Easiest is Amazon. You can order from Barnes & Noble, Target. Uh, I'm now sold in England as well in um, whatever the, the big uh, Barnes & Noble equivalent is. It's uh, Waterstones. That's it. Google Play, Nook, everywhere. Every books are sold. You can find it. Awesome. Digital and print. You can also head over to RoySchwartz.com, and there's links to all the places there that you could find the book as well. It's a very colorful book. So Thank you. Well, Roy, thank you so much for hanging with me. I really appreciate it. Oh, thanks for having me. It was fun. And thanks for sharing your knowledge with us. It's very super of you. I got everyone right now is Googling Moyle. So who is not? (laughs) Exactly. Moyle, what is this thing? (laughs) Thank you so much. Eh, Somebody works for tips. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, man, that's nice. Um, All right, we're going to end it there. Thank you, Roy. (laughs) 
Bye bye. All right, everyone. That was Roy Schwartz. It's a lot of Yiddish for some of you, huh? If you need to know a word, just tweet at me at Jeff Dewaskin Show. I'll hook you up. I'll be your podcast host to Yiddish Dictionary. Not a problem at all. Get the book. You won't. We we only scratch the surface. If you thought this conversation was fascinating, I highly recommend you get the book. There's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pages. It's so in-depth, and it's a good read. It's a really good read. I thought you'd all enjoy learning that the Superman story was based on Moses with Passover right around the corner. I figured you'd hear this interview, and then you'd go tell everyone at your seders all about Superman. Or if you're not uh, Jewish, just dinner at your dinner. Whatever faith you are, share what we learned today. And maybe you'll win a trivia contest coming up in the near future. Anyway, thanks to Roy. That that was so fascinating. All right. Well, with the interview over, that can only mean one thing. That's right. That means it's time for another trending hashtag from the family of hashtags at hashtag roundup. Follow us on Twitter at hashtag roundup. Download the free hashtag roundup app at the Google Play Store or iTunes app store. It's free, always free, never costs a penny. Download it. Get notified every time a game goes live. Tweet along with us. And one day, one of your tweets may show up on a future episode of Live from Detroit. The Jeff Duoskin Show. Fame and fortune await you. Today's hashtag is brought to us by hashtag your it. Of course, inspired by the topic of today's episode. The hashtag is hashtag downside of being Superman. Hashtag you're it. A weekly game on hashtag roundup asked all of Twitter. Oh my goodness. So you're Superman, but even Superman, there's got to be a downside. So what would be the hashtag downside of being Superman? And Twitter did not fail us. Here are some hashtag downside of being Superman tweets. St. Patrick's Day kind of freaks you out. That's what happens when the one thing that really messes you up is green. Green everywhere. A green everywhere day is not going to be a good day. That is an example of a hashtag downside of being Superman. Here's some more. You eat one donut and everybody sees it in the spandex. It's the chafing of the tights. Never being able to cash in your frequent flyer miles. Your Nick Cage movie never happened. Oh, you don't have villains as cool as Batman's. These are some hashtag downside of being Superman. Truce. Here's some more. Having to replace a wall every time you sneeze. That can get expensive. You wear underwear on the outside. Let me say that there. You wear your underwear on the outside. I had to rephrase that like my friend Ben used to say. You save one person in peril once, and suddenly everyone expects you to save them. I know, right? Dorothy can't win. DC gave you a mullet in the 90s? That sounds like something we should leave between Superman, DC, and the 90s. Everyone sees your underwear and asks you if you're from France because they can see your underpants. I added that last part. Wonder Woman steals the show. Well, she's got those fancy little things. Bracelet things. And the final hashtag downside of being Superman. Capes went out of style. Oh, no. Poor Superman. Well, good thing for Superman. There's a lot of upsides to being Superman as well. 
So let's focus on those as we wind up the episode. All those tweets, they'll be retweeted at Jeff Dewaskin Show on Twitter. Retweet them, show them some love. If you thought of a downside of being Superman, tweet your own. Tag me on Twitter, and I'll, I'll show you some Twitter love. Well, that's it. We're at the end of the podcast. Episode 119 has come to a close. I want to thank, once again, my special guest, author Roy Schwartz. Everyone check out his book, Is Superman Circumcised? Winner of the 2021 International Diagram Prize for Oddest Book Title of the Year. That's right. Award-winning is Superman Circumcised. Anyway, thank you, Roy, for joining me. And thank all of you for joining me as well. Can't thank you enough. Means the world to me. You're coming back week after week. And I'll see you next time. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of The Jeff Dwoskin Show with your host, Jeff Dwoskin. Now go repeat everything you heard and sound like a genius. Catch us online at thejeffdwoskinshow.com or follow us on Twitter at Jeff Dwoskin Show. And we'll see you next time.